Hello and welcome back to another episode of Not All Men Improv, the improv podcast brought to you by the female members of Thespionage Productions. My name's Regina and I'll be your host today. Joining me from Thespionage are Lauren. Hello. Victoria. Hello. And Lizzie. Hi. And our special guest today is the wonderful Kitty Speed. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Kitty is a stand-up comedian who previously performed a set at Thespionage's Secret Comedy Shindig in July last year. That feels like forever ago, by the way. Mm-hmm. I had to look up when that was and I was like, ah, oh, it was only a year ago. So much has happened since then. <laughs> <laughs> so um, to start off with, Kitty, um, how did you get into stand-up? Ooh, thank you for asking. So I had been doing acting beforehand so I started like trying to get serious about acting when I was about 18 but there's so many gatekeepers in acting and I realized that in comedy you can stand on a stage and tell stories and no one can stop you um, (laughs) straight away (laughs) so I started in May 2018 in the local pubs in Oxford and then just getting as many gigs as I can since then. That's amazing. Did you do theatre at uni or did you consider kind of going to drama school or yes, you go to I, drama school? I did. I did one year on Rada's Foundations in Acting course, which was amazing. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. And it was everything that you expect it to be. Like, yeah. genuinely spent a whole day pretending to be a leopard. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and like, you start to believe, I mean, I 100% believe the stuff like, be the leopard. I, I was the lesson. <laughs> it was, yeah, wow. it was amazing. Yeah, but even after doing that course, it didn't come with agency shows at the end of, because you're expected to go on and do an extra three years. So it didn't come with that. And I found it really hard. I was doing a lot of, telling a lot of other people's stories and it was quite frustrating. Being the most committed person in a show or a like student film is the most frustrating thing ever. Mm-hmm like ah like like doing group work at school exactly (laughs) (laughs) and as an actor you know you're only responsible for your one person you can't give feedback to other people that would be wrong you can't tell people that they need to take this seriously you can only control yourself and it's exhausting so stand up you get to control everyone on stage Mm -hmm. and it's just me That's amazing. That makes sense. It does make sense. And also about, yeah, stand up being so accessible and you can kind of like learn as you go along and it's very much kind of trial by by fire without so much formal training required. Absolutely. Like you're supposed to be rubbish when you start. And also what I love about comedy is that like, and I'm sure you get this in improv. I mean, that must be the fear all the time. But in stand up, when you've got new material, it's probably going to be at least a little bit rubbish. I've never seen an experienced stand up do new material and laughed out loud the whole time. Like you just kind of have to accept that some of it's going to be rubbish. And that's a lot harder to do in other disciplines, but in, in comedy and in improv, like, do you ever have scenes where you think, oh, let's abandon this? What do you do when it's gone horribly wrong? <laughs> uh, when we do it in kind of in, in sessions or in workshops when it's just us, we might sort of self-edit and be like, oh, and just kind of stop and, and break it up and be like, oh, I'm not sure this, this is right. And sort of talk, maybe talk about why and ask other people for input. But when it's in a show, I don't know, we just have to keep going until Paddy, our host, tells us to stop. <laughs> <laughs> 
You didn't have any bad ones in the shindig, which is a shame because I could have learned. Ah. <laughs> I think sometimes when things are going a little bit away from where you want them to go, sometimes they just end up being quite surrealist, which is funny in its own way. It, it just changes it. You just have to kind of, there's that automatic response to just change what you're doing so you get laughs I suppose the joy of improv and often we the way it's structured the scenes we often have kind of things that we have to hit because of the rules of the game so you know if someone's guessing something or you, you just have to be able to go through the stages of something so that's always a good guide to kind of bring you back and in that situation sometimes Paddy can intervene and, and prompt us to reroute sometimes reroute. <laughs> he's, like, he's like a comedy sat nav <laughs> Go round the roundabout, second exit. <laughs> Make a U turn where possible. So, um, reverse, reverse. <laughs> and so, when you started, Kitty, did you have any kind of particular comic inspirations for, for actually kind of taking the plunge or in shaping your material and, and how you deliver it? Yeah, I, when I first started, I was really, really keen on Victoria Wood. She was the reason I wanted to do it because I love everything she does the songs, the stand up, the dinner ladies, all of that all of that she's so amazing she was so amazing so that definitely influenced it certainly in in feeling comfortable being a bit weird but wanting to be relatable mm -hmm. um certainly set my priorities and then i did something which i i've had criticism for but i think it's a really good thing for the first year that I was doing stand-up, I only watched stand-up, other female comedians stand-up mm -hmm. online. And I just like ate up everything that was available. So I kind of never felt like it wasn't for women. I always felt like I'm surrounded. There's loads of women who do it. So I'm really inspired by Tig Notaro and Mae Martins. Yes. And yes, Catherine <laughs> Ryan and Felicity Ward and especially Felicity Ward actually yeah and I also read a lot of autobiographies particularly from female stand-ups so like Sarah Millican just trying to absorb as much as possible because I didn't want it to feel like a masculine space that I had to adapt myself to I wanted it to feel like yeah I belong I don't have to prove anything although I've had criticism saying that I should be representative of what's going on around me and that like it gives me two female a gaze which I think is ridiculous because mm. what is two female? What is that? No one would ever criticise a male comedian for being too male would they? Mm. It, it's just I think it's almost like the space has been defined by men but that doesn't mean that we can't redefine it as women and it's... also I think everyone has absorbed that masculine energy like my my friend who said this to me has watched mostly male comedians they just haven't done it on purpose that's just all that they found i found this before people saying that and they're like oh yeah but i don't find women funny and you think it's <laughs> you might have seen say a hundred male comedians and you've seen two female comedians and you didn't like some of what those two said so they stand out to you whereas you watch a lot of crap comedy by men but because you then have seen more of it you see more funny bits it's just yeah. it's it's the balance the numbers that you've seen and also we're, I mean, rightfully, we're pushing women up to the top now so that we've got more people on the panels and, and represented. But these are women who have had less experience because previously they weren't given those opportunities. Mm -hmm. So you're comparing, you know, Paul Merton, who's been on the panel for, what, 20 years versus someone who's just arrived two years ago. Of course, you're going to find one funnier, but 15 years time, even less time, you're not going to feel the same way about it if you just 
give them time to get experience. I also, um, when I was doing the Improv Boost takeover, I shared an article, it was about Catherine Ryan, who had just quit Mock the Week because she um, felt like she was taking up the space of other female and non-white comedians. And that's, I think, a really interesting point because you do kind of only see the same dozen female comedians kind of on on the big circuits and on the, the panel shows. And I think that's really interesting is that the, the people promoting those comedians or the people that are allowing them to be on the shows are just saying, well, we have our, our token female comedian that we use and we're just going to use her because that works for us. Who also just... happens to fit in with our beauty ideals that we expect yeah. women yeah, to have exactly. on a panel show on the BBC. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah. I mean, I'm still saying I love her, but you know. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, I thought that was that was so great that she did that, that she kind of used her, yeah. her privilege as a recognised, in inverted commas, acceptable female comedian to, to raise up other people. It was amazing. Yeah, and also the way that she kind of gives us a glimpse into what goes on before the panel show is even aired. Um, you know, the fact that there's a room full of people imagining who would fit well together, imagining who an audience would like. It's just like acting. It's so many gatekeepers imagining mm-hmm. what other people, yes. mostly men, are going to find yes. interesting to watch on screen. It's just nonsense. That's what's so good about live comedy is people turn up and you find out firsthand. And I think going back to what you said about people criticizing you for kind of immersing yourself in the work of female comedians is really interesting. And I was going to ask why and obviously partly covered that. And I'm wondering also if obviously there's just this kind of central notion that anything a female comedian says when she opens her mouth is instantly going to alienate the non-female portion of the audience. But that never ever gets flipped on its head. If all they see is gender, then they won't realise that there is the vast majority of humour. Like a Venn diagram with a really big fat middle, like it's just, yeah. we're all human. <laughs> There's so much material that could be in a male or female comedian set. Absolutely. And you're not supposed to have experienced everything the comedians experienced. Otherwise, they wouldn't feel the need to open your mouth. They just point at stuff and laugh. (laughs) (laughs) So long as you have empathy, you can empathise with the person, the situation that they've been in or what they're saying. Clearly, there's just a lot of sociopaths around. (laughs) When women go to sort of stand-up comedy gigs, we're we're sort of it's expected that you know we can laugh at dick jokes, for example, if they come up, and you know, if, you know, if that's if, if we're expected to have the empathy to do that, then why can't men take the empathy of imagining what it's like to be a woman and yeah have that empathy to laugh at that? And men wouldn't be criticised for just watching uh, male comedians, mm. would they? But I find that um yeah, that really interesting that kind of like academic sort of approach that you took Kitty to kind of prepare and that also makes me think of lots of things that like lots of bits of advice I've come across about writing is that the more you read the better a writer you'll be you just have to read and read and read and absorb other people's work for kind of ideas and and inspiration. Yeah definitely before I started doing stand-up I didn't actually know a huge amount of stand-up I still don't know very much about stand-up I find it really hard actually to balance between I want it to be fresh I want it to be new I want it to be different I don't want to be conforming to what's been set by the people around me I don't want to be fitting myself into little boxes but at the same time I do want to be on par I do want to get the wisdom from the other people at the moment I feel like I'm 100% in an apprenticeship stage if you think of an apprenticeship <laughs> being seven years I've got seven years before I start to feel like I can 
break all the rules so at the moment I'm focusing on like learning the rules (laughs) (laughs) it's like that thing they say about it takes 10,000 hours of doing something before you're good at something and that's such a big terrifying number but um yeah sort of like fits in with the apprenticeship yeah seven years thing yeah absolutely so something I wanted to ask was whether you had any particular shows that stick out in your memory either for good or for bad reasons yes (laughs) (laughs) The good ones, and I'm not saying this to buff you up. I absolutely loved the shindig last year. Oh, so nice. You've got such a good space. You've got such lovely audience members. It was such a nice variety. It was beautifully hosted. And I just felt like the whole audience was with me the whole time. I didn't need to do any drip feeding of get ready for this. I'm going to say something. They were just with me the whole time and they loved it. And I loved it. And it was so much fun. In contrast, (laughs) (laughs) Uh here we go. (laughs) I I did a gig in, I think it was Leicester, somewhere that really isn't too far away from my hometown. So I feel like culture shock shouldn't have been a thing. I don't know what it was that made this gig not go well. I think part of it was that I didn't have a microphone, which was brutal. Never, never put a comedian on stage without a microphone. Like, not a stand-up. This is the only thing that gives me power. Like, oh my goodness. And the other problem is that the audience was kind of a little bit raised. So the people at the back were sitting on tables and things, which meant they were actually quite high up, which means they were kind of looking down. Exactly. Kind of like a gladiator's ring of me (laughs) in the middle. And it was of the older generation, which isn't usually a problem. It isn't a huge problem because I force my parents to come to my shows regularly to check that they find it funny and approve. And so like I'm used to like getting very, very brutally honest (laughs) opinions. But this particular one, I don't know what it was about the setup, but the audience just was not enjoying themselves oh it was so uncomfortable i think it was because they came with the mindset that a women can't be funny and b women audience members women can't laugh at sexy jokes it's not funny let's not laugh about this and so there were occasions where like men would laugh and the wives i presume would elbow them in the side like stop laughing Oh, and then it was so uncomfortable because the comedians in the green room could all hear and they were having a good time because the gig, from my perspective, it was going okay. It was very old material. It was ready to go. So they were having a good time because they were relaxed and comfortable. But the audience, it was like I could sense every butt cheek clench <laughs> at yep. everything I said. And I could hear it, right? Because I didn't have a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> And at one point, the, the comedians, I was, I had to comment on the fact that the comedians were laughing and it was the only laughter any of us could hear. Because like, do I talk through their laughter or do I, like, <laughs> while watching their icy faces or do I just plow straight on? So I said, oh, they're having a good time. And one of the audience members said, yes, that's because they're men. I know, oh. I, I really don't want to bring gender into this all the time, but it's amazing how often it comes up. Only men can laugh at dirty, sexy jokes. Wow, do you think that that particular attitude is is a bit more of a generational thing do you think we're shifting away from that 
perhaps i think we're still falling into all these like madonna whore complex situations so i think we think you know it's fine to be the sexy person to laugh at the sexy jokes we still believe there to be a divide i'm pretty sure in our generation but the older generation see the madonna whore complex divide you know you're either sexy or you're wholesome and they can only fit into the wholesome vibe i don't know whether they would have felt more comfortable about it when they're younger and now they're older, they feel, well, now I'm the Madonna and I can't laugh at sexy jokes. Mm. Or they've always felt that way and it's the way that society pressures them to feel. I feel like there are tactics that I will grow to be able to use to put that kind of audience member at ease and ease them into it better. And as material gets older, it gets easier to do. And I do see that, although it would be lovely if all audience members came totally equipped and ready to laugh, it is a skill and it is an important responsibility, I think, of the comedian to like coax them in with little, little nuggets of socially acceptable jokes before <laughs> jokes. <laughs> I think just the practical like setup of that show as well sounds like a real sort of a hurdle to start off with. I mean, not having a mic, I don't think I've ever seen a stand-up perform without a mic. It must be, become like a bit of a security blanket. What do you do with your hands? So why yeah. don't you do it? <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, you're trained in acting. You'll be fine at this, just project. But you sound like such a knob if you project while doing stand-up. Like, you can't give observations at, like, full belt. That just sounds rubbish. And oh. also for an audience that's a bit timid, then just shouting all these dirty, sexy jokes at them. It must be, you know, for all the, you know, these quite prim and proper people, it must be a little bit scary, like, whoa! <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah. And if you talk too quietly, then they can't hear you. They will 100% talk over you or they'll talk mm. to their, the person next to you. I can't hear them. Can you? But I think a lot of comedians see it as a kind of badge of honor. Like, yes, I can do a stand up set without a microphone. It's like, yes, oh. you can. Should you? <laughs> That's interesting that they see it as like a thing they've kind of survived, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think it only works for Brian Blessed. <laughs> Is there any advice you would give? to somebody considering giving stand-up a go? Do it. Number one, do it. <laughs> Number two, do it again. I guess my best tip is that I keep a notebook of every gig I do and I'll write an objective before I start. I mean, your first gig, you don't care. Your job, right, is just to stay on stage and see if anyone laughs. But then once you start getting into it, it can be quite overwhelming to think, oh my God, I have to be good at everything. There are so many skills. I cannot learn all these skills. Oh my Lord. But I do a, a new objective every week. So I'm only focusing on one thing. And then at the end of the gig, I'll write notes about whether I achieved that or not. And I'll set ideas for what my next objective is going to be. And that gives me so much of a confidence boost because I have a metric to judge if I did a good job or not. And it's not reliant on whether I have a microphone or whether anyone finds me funny. It's reliant on my own progress and what I'm doing to get better. I also recommend, which I was discouraged from doing, but I think really helped. When I first started, I did new material every week. Yeah, which is, it sounds like really prolific, but they were tiny sets. I'd do like three minutes, five minute sets, and i just write new stuff every week and get up, just so I got used to that feeling of terror. Because <laughs> <laughs> when you're a new comedian, it will be scary doing new material, especially when you first start doing it. You can put yourself in a false sense of security and it's so hard to get out of that if you have and old material does do that because it's a comfort blanket you've said it before if they don't find it funny this time it doesn't matter they found it funny last time and they're more likely to find it funny because you've already honed and crafted it but i would discourage people 
unless it's the only thing that's given you courage, in which case keep going, I would probably discourage them from doing old material every week. But I know that that is contrary to all the advice from every comedian I've ever met. So see what you think. <laughs> that is interesting though, because I guess if you do craft a set and keep kind of coming back to it, the kind of traditional way, you, there's a risk that you might get, you know, like second album syndrome. Like when should you move on to the next one? And is it going to be as good as the first one? So I can definitely see the point in doing new stuff over and over. I suppose if you're constantly working on new material, you're in that mindset, aren't you? You're constantly thinking about how you can develop and how you can improve instead of thinking, oh, well, I'm just going. It's just like performing in a play otherwise, isn't it? I suppose it's all immersed. Just do it over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there is there are benefits to honing it because you'll find better words each time and it will get funnier each time and you're gaining confidence each time. But also it, it can mean that you're stuck on a story that's not particularly funny. A lot of new stand-ups will do the joke that they tell or the, the story that they tell to their mates at the pub, but it's not the same because nobody believes anything you say when you're on stage. So it can be easy to fall into that, just honing that story again and again and again. When actually, it'd be so much better if you just dropped that story and took it on a tangent. You can't polish a poo. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> moving away from, uh, from stand-up for a minute. So, as you've already mentioned, you have a background in, in acting. And I discovered in the course of my very brief research for this episode that you've actually been in a film. Oh, you yeah. an IMDb page. I do, yeah. That's so yeah, exciting. Yeah. Yes. Would you like to, to tell us about the film? Sure, absolutely. So it's a zombie film. Yeah, I play the love interest, which I love for many reasons, but I also find a little bit limiting. This is what mm-hmm. I mean about telling other people's stories. You know, being the damsel in distress a lot of the time. Although I do think my character is badass. She's not necessarily narratively told through that lens. But the film was so much fun. It was fun to shoot. It was fun to make. It was a, I think it was a 10 grand project by Wild Seed Studios. We filmed over nine days. It's called Hungerford. And it's based in this guy's hometown. He's a visual effect genius. And he's been making projects on YouTube for forever. And Wild Seed Studios found him and then did local casting auditions. And I was brought in. And it was so much fun. We actually improvised all the lines. Oh, amazing. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I wish we had filmed our rehearsals because... They were, it were I, I really thought they were magical. It's a lot harder when it gets to location to keep improvising the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. But it was so much fun. It was crazy. We had a premiere at the BFI in London. Oh, wow. Ooh, wow. It was insane. It was really fun. They've done a sequel. It originally started as a web series as well. So it all changed and got rewritten a little bit after we finished filming. So it was quite exciting for me to see the end result. Like, what actually happens at the end? <laughs> <laughs> oh wow when I find out that improv has been used as a technique in Mm -hmm. films I just find that so fascinating and and I try sometimes to kind of sense when it's being used and sometimes I don't and it comes as a total surprise like there's a bit in the breakfast club which is improvised which is so hilarious I couldn't believe that it was improvised it's when I don't know if everyone's seen it I've only seen it once and I can't remember the character's name which is gonna make this hard to explain (laughs) The, the stereotypical like nerdy guy he's telling them that he got a detention and it was for bringing, um, I think it's a flare gun to school and because he, he takes ages building up to tell them what it was for. And they were like, what, what, what? And then he says it and I think he made that up and none of them knew it was coming. So they all laugh and it, so it's all real laughter. I just love finding out things yeah. like that and finding out about people using improv on film. You get very genuine reactions, I think, when it's just off the cuff. 
Yeah. yeah. And I think it matters so much. Oh, I love good writing. And I think it is definitely the skill of good actors to make a good writing feel like improv because it's, you know, it takes us to another level. But it's just so glorious, isn't it? The chemistry between the actors is so much more important than the words. I hate to say it. Like in Goodwill Hunting, when Robin Williams is talking about his wife farting in yeah. bed, that yeah. is all improvised. Yeah. Oh. And like, it, strictly speaking, it's not that funny, but I've never found the line that funny. But his response is just so glorious and wholesome and warm and cuddly. It's just an absolutely gorgeous moment of bonding. I read afterwards that, because well, I didn't notice it myself at the time and I haven't watched it back, but you can see the camera slightly shaking. The camera <laughs> is laughing so hard. Robin Williams used a lot of improvisation mm. in his comedy, didn't he? I can't imagine what it must have been like to edit his work. <laughs> yeah. Take it again, take it again, take it again. No, I need to do it again, again, again. And then trying to find like the funniest lines must have been yeah. insane. And it must have taken so much bravery and self assurance to be able to say, no, 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 we're going to do this again. Or no, 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 I see this line, but I'm going to improvise around it and you're going to enjoy it and it's going to be worth it. I think we've got big people doing, you know, Robin Williams, Jim Carrey, they're all taking up that kind of space. Rebel Wilson now is doing mm. a similar thing. Mm. I'm so good to see it erupting around us. So apart from your experience improvising for the film, have you done much improv before? I did some classes with Seamus Allen, who runs an improv group in Reading. And we did it at the Watermill Young Company down in Newbury. There's a little theatre, which is very cute, the Watermill Theatre. It's really, really nice theatre. And the youth group there, it was all based around improv. So we did the essential skills of of yes and and some lovely games <laughs> I'm so like weird and I don't know if my compulsive note-taking gave it away but I'm quite clenched fisted when it comes to art which I don't also don't recommend <laughs> but when it came to improv I was like and how can I do this alone in my bedroom so that I can rehearse <laughs> every night for three hours how, how do I do that but it turns out there there isn't really much you can do <laughs> No. <laughs> I sometimes talk to myself in the car when I'm driving to and from work to work on accents. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, I'm rubbish at accents. I teach English as a foreign language, so it's literally my job to help people with their accents, and I am useless at them myself. That's yeah. why I have to talk to myself in the car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I practice singing games, so like games where you have to sing and try to rhyme you don't have to rhyme but it can always help so I do that in the house just like kind of narrate what I'm doing or and sing it and try and rhyme it usually to set tunes so you can improv alone <laughs> and uh, in the kitchen I normally I'm hosting a cooking show <laughs> talk myself around the kitchen recording them and putting them on Instagram uh, no but um sometimes Alex comes downstairs and he gets involved he's sometimes the cameraman <laughs> Doing the improv, do you think you've kind of carried anything from that over into doing stand-up? Any kind of those sort of skills? Yeah, certainly the trying to shed the fear of getting up on stage definitely helps a huge amount. You can definitely tell a comedian who regularly does improv from someone who doesn't. The skills are just, it's just so good, especially when it comes to audience banter and audience interaction and being in the moment and also just prioritizing the present moment 
because it's so easy to get bogged down in you know what you want to say and how you want to say it and what you're going to say next and how much time you've got on the clock and whether that booker is here and it's it's really good to stay in the present moment and to just enjoy what's happening right now and it, improv comedians always do that I mean I know it's such a cliche be in the present moment but it's legit and most audience members think you're saying it for the first time until you show that you aren't the average I don't think the average audience member even realizes that you've planned to say this so it's so mm-hmm. much better when, and you're like yeah this is definitely the first time I've said this <laughs> <laughs> oh that's really interesting yeah being in the moment hmm, I like that be the leopard yeah. <laughs> I saw that you've been doing some socially distanced gigs. How have you found it? How have you find, found it getting back into it? I mean, did you do any on Zoom? Yeah, I did one gig on Zoom, which was lovely. That was for Hungerford Comedy Club, and it was so nice. And Zoom was, was, was fine for that. I actually kind of, in some ways, preferred it because it's chatting to someone in your bedroom. It's Mm-hmm. It's a different vibe, but I like it. It's a fun vibe. You don't have to worry about props and microphones and holding stuff. You can just talk to them, which is really nice. But it does make audience interaction really hard and laggy mm-hmm. and awkward. And then, yeah, for Jericho Comedy in Oxford, we did a socially distanced gig in a gin distillery. Nice. <laughs> oh my God, so much good gin. <laughs> <laughs> So there were squares on the floor with benches of bubbles to sit at and you bought a bubble rather than buying an individual ticket, Mm. which meant there were quite a few groups of four, you know, households were there in groups of two, which was really nice. And then they had an app on their phone to get drinks delivered to the table rather than getting up to order. So it was really, really good. And then we had a separate mic for the comedians, which was sterilized between, you know, handovers. And I was very nervous. I know that a lot of the other comedians there were nervous. I kind of liked it because I was on with comedians of a quite high caliber uh, with loads and loads of experience and really, really funny and killed it every time I saw them and they were nervous. So I was like, well, it doesn't matter how I do, you know, I'm way behind them. So if they do fine, <laughs> I'm going to do fine. And then I think that was a really good attitude to take because I was just relaxed mm. and I had a really fun set. The weather was gorgeous for it because it was all outdoors. Mm. I think the basis that they're running it is if it starts raining, we cancel the show. Everyone's mm-hmm. just going to be fine with that. So they're just booking people who either live locally or just fine with the fact that if it if it rains, we go home. But yeah, it happened to be a gorgeous night and it was really dark by the time I was on stage and there were stage lights again. I love stage lights. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it was just a really nice time. Although I couldn't really hear many people laughing or clapping because they were so far away, but mm-hmm. it was still beautiful. Mm. Sounds like a positive first show back. Mm, yes. I just wanted to say that I, I think you're such a badass. This is the first time I've met you. You come across as just being so doing your own thing. People are telling you that you should do this. And you're like, screw you. I'm going to do what I think is right for my career. And I think that's amazing and so brave. And I just have a lot of admiration for you. Thank you. <laughs> and I very much enjoy following you on Instagram. Thank you. You're like a little lockdown bear, watercolours. Yeah. Thank you. Them. And also all bos- body positivity stuff, I think. You're doing a great job. <laughs> Thank you. I should have recorded this myself. Say <laughs> 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 it for myself. <laughs> okay, so uh, now we're going to move on to the topic discussion part of the episode, which this week is all about tackling taboos in comedy or with comedy. So, Kitty, this is a particularly pertinent topic 
for you, I guess. Do you want us to start off with kind of telling us about your experience of using stand-up to address potentially controversial topics? Yeah, so I really like talking about taboos on stage, partly because it comes with an inherent tension, which leads to comedy, and partly because I like to have a good reason to get on stage other than I want people to look at me. And also it's a really nice comfort blanket to be like, well, people need to know <laughs> when nobody laughs. Or laughs, I <laughs> So I had a gig the other day where they asked for a clean set and I was really worried because although I don't swear in my shows, I talk about almost exclusively taboo subjects. And I gave him a list. I was like, okay, so I'm going to talk about periods. I'm going to talk about masturbation. I'm going to talk about sexual anxiety disorders I'm going to talk about blowjobs <laughs> and um, I sent him this list and he was like whoa I've seen your set are you sure you talk about all these things because I do but I think it's it's so interesting what people consider taboo and what people don't consider taboo and also the fact that whenever it's a woman the list of taboos increases than when a man talks about you know wanking on a keyboard that's way less controversial <laughs> than me getting up and mentioning the first time I had my period. Like, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I think just like in a nutshell, it's just anything to do with women's bodies. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> and yeah. were you able with that, with that show, was, were you able to kind of to do your set as you listed or were there certain things where they were like, you can't talk about that or? Luckily they gave, we had a full phone conversation and we talked it through and he explained that, you know, he wanted it to be, he basically wanted it to be wholesome, which is perfect because I wanted it to be wholesome. And it was such a good set actually. There was a 75 year old who messaged afterwards to say how much she enjoyed it. And And my mum was also on that one and she really enthusiastically approved. So it was very encouraging. My mum was raised Irish Catholic, so her tolerance level is very low. And so I try to talk to the audience about taboos in the same way that I talk to her about taboos, Mm -hmm. which is centering my feelings and why I think it's important and then like gently coaxing her in. I think if people feel like I'm saying something to be funny, which men can absolutely do and people are, but I think certainly when women say something to like gross people out or to be funny then people just switch off immediately Mm -hmm. and they say no I'm not a girl like that or no I'm not going to find a girl like that funny that's really interesting yeah I guess there's also the kind of the accusation that might get trotted out of just wanting to shock as well um which is really like the opposite isn't it because that suggests you're trying to push people away when actually you're trying to kind of draw them in and make them understand and see it differently Absolutely, exactly. And I also have the opposite occasionally where people are like, that was so educational. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) I'm surprised you didn't know this before, but I'm glad that you know this now. But also, I mean, did you laugh? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. How do you, I was going to toss it back to you and say, you know, what's it like? Because obviously, the downside of doing stand up is that when I want to address taboos, I've prepared it in advance, I've practiced in advance, I kind of come up with it and like if the audience isn't into it they just kind of got to buckle in because that's what the set's going to be tonight what's it like in improv where you always have the switcheroo card and you can always check it out as soon as you want what's it like pushing through that for taboos I think um with improv it's sort of I don't know if it's the mood that we kind of create as a group or if it's something that happens with a lot of groups but because it, it, it does it's kind of seen as being very sort of silly and spontaneous and light you know you do a scene about orange and it can be quite difficult to go from that to, to getting into something that's a bit deeper but it's not impossible I think it's just not necessarily 
the kind of vibe that people expect mm. which then does make it a really good opportunity to kind of to dip into those sort of areas yeah so you don't necessarily get the kind of airtime to sort of yeah really tackle something and really try and get people to think but you you have an option you know an opportunity to kind of graze things lightly I guess yeah. <laughs> they're so important they're great those grazers though aren't they aren't they because they really build a foundation you know you know droplets in a bucket it's, mm. it does fill up it does set a tone and as I experienced it sets a tone of real openness and that all those topics that when I <laughs> gave them <laughs> sexual anxiety disorders <laughs> they were they were totally ready for it they'd been primed and, and ready to go. I think that I've found in improv the closest I can get to talking about taboo subjects and that sort of thing is when I the focus is very much just on me during a game so for example doing monologue thief Mm. Um, there have been a number of times where I have. I think my topic was something like the gynecologists and it got into some very traumatic, mm. deep monologue about trips to see the gynecologist. And I, I enjoyed it and the audience was um, traumatised by the end of it, but I think they enjoyed it very much. Sometimes the trauma is so funny as well, especially yes. with something that I don't know the premise of monologue thief, but if you're, are you trying to steal space to, to take yeah, it? So everybody is lined up on stage and you all start off with like a 10 second introduction to your theme and then so then somebody kind of gets started and then other <laughs> players on the stage can take the last few words of somebody else's sentence and start their next bit of their monologue with that and carry on. I suppose sometimes when you're in the flow of it, it can be quite difficult for the people to pick up lines and it just towards the end, because you have a limited time frame, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and everybody's <laughs> like trying to take lines from people and it's good. That's fun. so gorgeous as well because there's like an inherent, you know, juxtaposition of the, you know, the the contrast of the, what the person before is saying versus the, the deep depths of what you're saying. That's, yeah. oh, that's wonderful. I was just going to ask Kitty a question because I've done like performance poetry before where I tackled depression and anxiety, but I, I did, so I did it as like slam poetry or stand-up poetry, but it often is quite depressing. They're quite sad poems. So I was going to ask, how do you take a subject that's, that can be like quite upsetting or quite kind of depressing and make it funny and make it enjoyable for an audience? Because I don't think anyone in those audiences enjoyed my poetry. Um, <laughs> It was important for me to say it, but I don't think anyone enjoyed it particularly. Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? The word enjoy, like it gives the feeling that we have to get pleasure from it. But I think it's you can also get a huge amount of catharsis from hearing someone else say something and you know, it can stay with you then the next time you feel it, or you know, if you know if you've never felt it before, feeling it again in the future. I um I started talking about my mum. My mum got colon cancer last year, which obviously is a massive bummer. And I started talking about that on stage. And I think a big part of it when it goes well, part of it is letting it be sad and having these moments. And you see it in every every Edinburgh Fringe show that wins awards, there's always a sad bit about 45 minutes in that ties everything together and makes <laughs> everyone really sad. Because the thing is, you can't laugh for an hour, um, or maybe you can, but certainly it's a lot. It shows the laughter more extreme when you when you take it down and you feel sad. So I don't think it's about avoiding that sadness or turning that sadness into funny but just seeing funny aspects of that 
you know, mm. because, you know, often when you're feeling depressed or anxious, certainly I, there's some things that will make me laugh hysterically, despite the fact that, you know, I can't get out of bed. <laughs> there's, yeah. still, there's still moments of, isn't that mad? Um, and sometimes it's looking back on them. Isn't that mad? Like, isn't this incredible? That is funny to share. And, and they wouldn't be funny if we took away those deep, dark moments that the audience might not be enjoying, but they're with you on. One of the other things about that that my friend Alex Farrow was encouraging me to look at is that when you as the performer smile and laugh the audience will smile and laugh mm. and not to be afraid when you're talking about sad things to not be smiling and not be laughing and let them feel this moment mm. and let it build into laughing and smiling in a few moments when we say something that we want them to laugh at but yeah yeah definitely it's I think it comes with years and years as well I I definitely don't feel like I'm achieving it yet, but I would like to in the future. It's kind of creating that light and shade, isn't it? Yeah. That's kind of really what I thought of when you when you were saying that, because you don't want to look like you're trivialising subjects either, that you, you are talking about them to kind of address the fact that they're taboo. But in order to do that, you feel like you have to just point the laugh at them straight away, make it funny, force it to be funny. Yeah, absolutely. And often, I mean, it's such a cheap card, but I will say... I'm here to reduce the stigma because you're kind of programming it in people's brains. It's such a cheap cause. Like I shouldn't have to say that on stage, but it works. I mean, then audience are like, right, I'm doing a good job just by listening to this. I am happy the world. <laughs> it's kind of bringing the audience's expectations in line with what you're saying as well. Ease them in. Yeah. It's okay to find this really distressing because it is really distressing, but don't worry, stay with me. It's also hard because the start of your, something I've learned, been a hard time learning, is that you've got to come in at the start funny and trusting and tell them exactly who you are so that they feel comfortable when you get to the darkness to come with you in the darkness rather than just like, whoa, where am I? Who am I? What's this? Do I, should I keep listening? Should I switch off? They're triggering for me or this is reminding me of things. It's like, no, stay with me, please. <laughs> it's something that we, that we all do when we're improvising, not necessarily when we're talking about anything dark or kind of serious, but just when we're doing scenes, having moments where you kind of break the fourth wall and like turn and smile and laugh at the audience or even say something to the audience about what you're doing. And that can really help um, kind of to build the, the connection with the audience and so that they kind of, I guess, sort of see what's going on inside your head, maybe why you've made a decision about a scene or just to kind of say like yeah I know this impression is terrible but what are you gonna do <laughs> um, it brings and them along on the ride yeah, yeah exactly I find it really interesting that you are doing stand-up about sexual anxiety disorders that's something that I have been dealing with for a very long time I came out as asexual a couple of years ago and that really helped me to kind of be okay with with some of the things that I've been experiencing how do you find the audience because it's really not it's something that a lot of particularly women deal with uh, when they're exploring their sexuality but I don't think it's a, a thing that a lot of people know about so how do you find the audience reacts to that uh, when you're telling like those kind of stories yeah that's uh yeah yeah yes sometimes often I mean statistically it affects one in every nine people minimum yeah. that's re the reported right yeah. so a lot I'm certain that a lot of people in the audience are going oh shit that's me um or you know some partners I've seen partners elbow each other like hey that's you which is 
a level of comfort. <laughs> so sometimes two couples will suddenly go stony face, but I think it depends on how comfortable I am with it. So there's there's aspects of my mental health that I'm not ready to talk about yet that I am writing about and I'd like to talk about in the future. But the the vaginismus stuff. I'm ready to share. I've got my angles and I'm comfortable. And I hope that makes the audience feel like they are also comfortable and they don't have to worry about that. But again, that only came from experience because I'm pretty sure a big part of that, that gig that went not so well in Leicester was because I was worried about their reaction. So my discomfort fed their discomfort, fed my discomfort, and it went in a loop. Yeah. But the only negative aspect I find about that is that people often think that I mean, it has great aspects too. Like I've had an audience member who looked like they were having a miserable time. <laughs> and, and afterwards they came up to me and they said, thank you so much for talking about dilators on stage, which was wonderful and also completely unexpected because she really wasn't having a good time from her face. She should have told her face, um, <laughs> which is amazing. But then the other aspect, which I don't like so much is that, and particularly it's men. Um, <laughs> I, I know it's not all men, um, but <laughs> afterwards they come up to me and they start talking about my vaginismus with me or just talking about my vagina with me. And it's like, mm. no, 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 no. I was okay with this concept. Like when I was in charge, I was on stage, I was the one with the microphone, but now you have more power than me because we're alone and mm. we're in a bar. You need to stop talking. Mm. And that's another yeah. aspect that I wish I'd thought about sooner so that I could shut those conversations down earlier rather than let them affect me. So that's the other piece of advice I'd have about it. Like be ready for people to talk to you and be ready with what you are willing to share and what's for you. That's amazing. I was just going to ask, in stand-up before, I've used, at least on one occasion, for lack of a better set, I've used my stand-up set as a bit of a catharsis. So I had this quite embarrassing medical experience last year. So I wrote a set based around that. But then I sort of came away sort of thinking, was that maybe not the best purpose for that set? Because it was, I, I like to think it was funny at the time, but maybe it wasn't. Do you have any tips on sort of maintaining that balance between the catharsis of the sets and sort of using it as a purgative and just still keeping it funny I guess yeah well I mean I also kind of think it's your time you got up there you put yourself on the line there you shared something authentic I mean it's my acting background that makes me say that's totally valid it doesn't need to be funny like you shared something and it was true it was honest and it was genuine if you felt comfortable and you wanted to share that I think that's a good thing and that's definitely my approach if no one finds me funny on a night I will still go away thinking well I met my objective and I shared something truthful and that's mm -hmm. that's all I wanted to do but I also think that there's a rawness that is good and there's a rawness that's bad like in acting you might access emotions by thinking about something that made you sad you want it to be far away enough that it doesn't tear your soul in half i don't think it's good acting if it's tearing your soul in half on stage i don't think it's good comedy if it hurts to share it i think that's just self-flagellation get off get off the stage have a cuddle talk about something else <laughs> but only and only the comedian can decide that for themselves mm -hmm. um, and yeah I wish I'd decided sooner what I felt comfortable on stage with and then what I felt comfortable off stage talking about because I think those are two very different dynamics so thank you Kitty for taking the time to chat to us today and um, we really loved having you on it's been great and thank you for listening to this episode of not all men improv we'll, we'll see you for the next one bye bye, bye. bye.